Today, uh, we will celebrate the Lord's Supper together, communion. This is the ordinance that we do often. Baptism is done once and signifies that one-time regenerating work of the Holy Spirit who identifies us with the body of Christ. And then today we will observe communion, which is a proclamation to one another that we have communion with God on the basis of the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. Uh, In preparation for that, please open your scriptures to Revelation 19. We're getting into uh, images that further sort of paint this picture of a final battle. And we will be reminded here towards the end of Revelation that Jesus will return to earth the same way he left it. And that is alive and with power. That's how we saw him go. And that's how he will return. Uh, Mark 13 verse 26 says, They will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. So we need to remember that as we wait, as we watch, as we worship, as we endure He will return with great glory and power. As we move to the final chapters of Revelation, and of course, probably some of our favorite chapters in Revelation, uh, chapters 21 and 22, where you see a new heaven and a new earth, and and you see that there will be no more tears and there will be no more death. I thought of the quote uh, in C.S. Lewis's uh, Chronicles of Narnia series, uh, but in the last battle, they come and they finally realize this new place and he says quote i have come home at last this is my real country i belong here this is the land i have been looking for all my life though i never knew it till now come further up come further in i don't know if you've ever visited your i mean if you didn't grow up here if you've ever gone back to visit where your childhood memories are And for me, that is in Bedminster, Pennsylvania. I think we still only have a stop sign there. No stoplights or anything. But as you get closer into eastern Pennsylvania and enter into Bucks County, there are certain familiar sights and smells um, that are just peculiar to that area. And we grew up out in a a rural area of Pennsylvania in about a 500-square-foot a home that felt huge as a child, but then you pull in and you're like, that's about the size of our garage now. And, but, but the smells and the farm that is across the street is still across the street. And if you grow up in eastern Pennsylvania in the rural section, you grow to love uh, or at least uh, value the smell of cow manure. So you're driving along and all that just reminds you of home. And those are good things. There's going to be a time when we get to heaven and it's just going to be right. Even though you've never been there, You're just going to be like like C.S. Lewis says, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I've been looking for all my life. You know, it's possible in the study of eschatology, eschatology simply means the study of last things, is to lose sight of Jesus Christ himself amidst all the sequences and timelines and images And I want us to be very careful that we don't do that, that somehow we get to the end of the book of Revelation and we understand it better. But it would be very sad if we had no greater love for Jesus Christ, no more value for the gospel, 
that hasn't affected our singing at all, that we're still critical somehow, that we're still arguing about, no, I think that event goes here, no, I really... And we're not changed. And that, to me, would be a travesty if we have looked into this great last book of God's Word and we remain untouched. The main message is there is a rescuer, a deliverer, who's going to make everything wrong in the world right again. And He hasn't done it yet. But He's given us promises. And He's come down and He's inaugurated that that new covenant that leads us to a new country. He's inaugurated that and that will be fulfilled. And when we believe that and we live like that, when we value things concerning that, then we are truly God's people. Sometimes we miss this main message of a rescuer, savior, deliverer. And we start to sort of line up things because we're fearful about what's about to happen. And and, and please don't arrange a system that, that simply is a response or a reaction from fear. God is able to keep you here through wrath just like he did Noah. But sometimes we we are so nervous about what we think is about to happen that we lose sight of this grand reality, that we have already been rescued from something much worse, and that is the second death. That if you're in Christ, you're safe. And death cannot harm you eternally because you have been delivered from the second death. The main message is Jesus Christ. Hebrews 9.28 clearly says, So Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. Meaning you have the fulfillment of your salvation. It will be finally full and complete. This morning we're going to look at a smaller portion. And I just want to step away and and look at Christ's second coming in light of these two realities. Christ comes in glory to reign. He is the supreme ruler. And Christ comes in glory to judge. That's been a familiar theme, right? The judgment of Jesus Christ. So he comes in glory to reign. He's the supreme ruler. And then he comes in glory to judge. We saw last week in Revelation 19, two beautiful pictures of a marriage and a wedding feast. And I just want to kind of recreate those as we get into a new image. The marriage. So if you're a believer, here's this picture of a marriage And you are the bride. You are the one loved. You are the one taken. You are the one in the beautiful garment. You are the one being accepted and cared for and protected and loved on by the bridegroom, Jesus Christ. This beautiful picture of a marriage. And then a wedding feast, a celebration with family and good food and good friends and good drink and a time of rejoicing. So when you go into the next verse, you're actually expecting then to see the bridegroom. But he doesn't continue with that image. Look at Revelation 19, verse 11. And rather than the picture of a bridegroom and the continuation of that image, you actually see a divine warrior. These two pictures of marriage and a wedding feast, and then a third picture moving into the divine warrior, follow the downfall of Babylon. He says this in verse 11, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. 
The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness He judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. Of course, John is going back to that vision in Revelation 1 where his eyes were ablaze like fire. And on his head are many diadems and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. Verse 13. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Like a Roman general in appearance, John sees this white horse and then the rider on a white horse. The writer comes, according to this text, to rule and to judge, to wage war, it says. And he has to because there are two beasts, and he's going to take them captive. And so you have this incredible imagery of Jesus Christ on a white horse coming to wage war. And finally, and this is the picture I want us to see because we're going to see some graphic images even in this shorter text. Uh, you're going to see Jesus Christ on a white horse exacting pure justice. And if we're honest in our hearts, we desire that. Right? So many of our questions and our frustrations in this life go back to, is God all-powerful? Is God just? But first, I want us to see how Jesus is revealed in His names. Faithful and true. You see those are capitalized? The one riding on him, he's faithful. Probably a reference to being a faithful martyr at his death. And true, his, by his word, by truth, he conquers and judges. Verse 11, in righteousness he judges and makes war. And this is comforting. Okay, so he is judging and making war. How? In what? In righteousness. There is no lust of conquest. There is, there is, there is, this is not a king being driven uh, by vindictiveness. He is righteously waging war and he is righteously judging. And you have to believe that is what people feel when they have been oppressed for years by a powerful tyrant or dictator. If you were to live under those leaders or within their prisons or at their labor camps, and year after year, there seems to be no hope, no hope of deliverance, no justice, no rescue. What would you be desiring? And so here you have this image and the world, Babylon, is being oppressed by the beast. And behind the beast is the dragon. And then you have the false prophet. And so they're being oppressed economically. They're being oppressed religiously. And you have this tyrant dictator who is absolutely cruel. And all of a sudden, John sees a white horse. And on him, someone who is faithful and true. And guess what? He hasn't come just to bring a message. He comes to righteously wage war. And if you're in the labor camp and you've been oppressed and you think you're you're about to breathe your last breath. What is your response to that kind of an image? 
I mean, you can see the choruses in Revelation uh, 18 and 19, how they are singing. They wait for a deliverer and now he is here. Secondly, look at verse 12. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. Nothing can be hidden from the gaze of this king. When he arrives, he sees everything for what it is. He knows that evil is evil. He knows that purity is purity. And he comes to wage war knowing all things and the character of every single human being. And yet we're reminded of something. This is the true king. On his head are many diadems. He sees everything. But we are reminded that there is something hidden about him. So, so although he knows everything, we do not. Look at what it says. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. There are still hidden mysteries about Jesus Christ. And perhaps even eternity will not fully reveal the depth and the wisdom and the righteousness and the holiness of God. So though he knows everything, we do not. There is a name he has written that no one knows but himself. Third, look at this in verse 13. He's in a robe, but what is peculiar about this robe? Right, it's dipped in blood. And notice, sort of, if you're going to construct a bit of a timeline here, um, it seems to be before he engages his enemies that his robe is already dipped in blood. So it's not like there has been a massacre and a bloodbath and he comes through drenched, but he's actually now the rider on the horse. It seems to be what this text is pointing to is that this conquering king is also the Lamb of God. This is, a, this is an image that, we've, that has been brought to us before. In Revelation 5, 6, John says, Between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. So when John sees the lamb, it's not just a lamb, but it has been sacrificed. It stands there alive, but as though it had been slain. In Revelation 5, 8, And when the lamb had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. Revelation 5.12, they say with a loud voice, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And then in Revelation 7, John says, after this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and listen to this, and before the Lamb. Now you have a conquering king on a white horse and his robe is dipped in blood. And it seems that John is reminding us that the Old Testament promise of God's future victorious kingdom inaugurated by the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, is now going to be fulfilled. This is the point Paul leads to when he wrote to the church at Philippi. Listen to what he says. Talking about Jesus Christ, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And now he goes and he moves into this, the incarnation of Christ, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. But Paul doesn't stop there with the humiliation. He actually moves to the exaltation. So he continues to write to the church at Philippi in verse nine. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. And bestowed on him the name that is above every name, 
so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the father. So Christ's humiliation moves to his exaltation. And so you, so we are reminded that this is the sacrificial lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world so that you don't confuse the images. This rider, this conquering king on a white horse, his robe is dipped in blood. But notice also that he is called the word of God. The name by which he is called is the word of God. And John uses that title two other times. In John chapter 1 verse 1, where it says, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And then how do you know who that is? Because verse 14 of John chapter 1, that he took on flesh and he dwelt among us. Jesus Christ is the word of God. But also in 1 John chapter 1, he talks about back at the beginning where we beheld him. And we saw him and he is the word of God. But don't forget this. And this is the final portion, the final point on this first portion. Look at verse 15. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the almighty. If you were to put that in. Just a small phrase. How would you describe what was just taught? What is John, what is John trying to communicate? What does, what does rod of iron... I mean, somebody rules with a rod of iron. What would we call that? Probably a dictatorship. And that's true. But Jesus is the only dictator that you want to be under. Nobody gets to come in and give him counsel. Nobody gets to change his mind. Nobody gets to bribe him. He rules with a rod of iron. This is uncontested authority. And isn't that what you long? If you have a king who is God and he's perfect, his ways are just and right, don't you want him to be uncontested in his reign? Absolutely. And folks, that is good news. And it is the Lamb of God who was slain for the sins of the world who comes with uncontested power and authority. This is further enforced by the unique title that only pretenders have used throughout history. Right? The king of Persia used this term. You know, pharaohs and kings in Babylon. Look at verse 16. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written. King of kings. And Lord of Lords, uncontested, riding in on a white horse of victory, remembering that he is the slain lamb of God, but now he comes to righteously wage war. So first, Christ will reign as supreme ruler. Secondly, look at this, Christ will judge. He is the infallible judge. Do you know judging the wicked is an essential part of Christ's kingship? For, for a president to be righteous, he must rule with justice. For a king to be righteous, he must rule with justice. Look at verse 17. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun. Now, now, throughout the book of Revelation, we haven't commented much about this, but John keeps switching perspectives. He's in heaven. He's on earth. He's in heaven. He's on earth. So where would you place John if he sees an angel standing on the sun? Somewhere midair, but John is on earth, on the earth, and it looks like the sun is under his feet. So this angel is coming down 
And with a loud voice, he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead. You're not going to want to miss this, this image. The angel calls out to the birds, come gather for the great supper of God. Now, before you read any further, what does that immediately contrast with? The marriage supper of the Lamb. Well, now there's another supper. And, and God is deliberately showing this sort of contrast. Here's the marriage supper of the Lamb. And you're the bride. And there's a feast. And it is a celebration. And the bridegroom has come to take you. Well, there's another supper. So the angel calls... For all the birds, and he says, come gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. This is an incredible image. And it would beg the question, which supper will you be at? Where are you going to have dinner? You have this beautiful picture of the marriage supper of the Lamb. And then you have this picture of birds of prey feasting on the flesh of fallen warriors, officers, and heroes, and slaves. The description emphasizes universality or completeness. There is no rescue for those who have opposed themselves against God. Do you see that? both free and slave, both small and great, the well-known, the popular, those who are totally overlooked, the heroes of battle, they too, when they set themselves in opposition to God, there is no rescue, there is no deliverance. Look at verse 19. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. You've already seen that picture. And now you have the beast and the kings of the earth with all their armies gathered to make war against him, specifically who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And do you remember this whole empire, this Babylon, which during John's writing would have been Rome and during our day uh, are all the countries that like at Babel corporately make human resistance against God. And that's when God came down and confounded their language. Here you have them corporately coming together and resisting the rider on the horse. I want you to notice something. Um, right after it says they're gathered, look at verse 20. And, and I don't believe that a lot of what's happening here is a timeline, but I want you to notice what's missing. Okay, so they're all gathered against the, uh, him who was sitting on the horse and against his army, verse 20, and the beast was captured. What's missing? The battle. I want details of the battle. Could it be that John is hinting that there's really no battle? I'm not saying that there isn't a real battle and that Jesus Christ is coming to wage an imaginary war. What I'm saying is there really is no contest. If you have a rider on a white horse who is the son of God and he has an army behind him, which seems to be an angelic army or those who have been redeemed, their linens are white and pure. But when, when the time actually comes for the clash, it's not, it's not a battle. Because he is God. And he has uncontested reign. 
And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two, the beast and the false prophet, were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him. There's a detail. So everybody else, the leaders are taken. Now you do have a bit of a detail. But the word of Christ's mouth is the weapon. Think of Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, that the, the word of God is sharp and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. It can actually pierce to your inward parts beyond what any medical procedure can do. It can actually pierce between your thoughts and your intentions. And you have the word of God and his weapon is the word. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. By Christ's word, they are destroyed. And that's it. And we're not going to develop this image anymore. I mean, if you've ever seen a garbage pile, we used to uh, minister next to a, a little town called Dandora. And you could see the big marabou storks and other birds of prey sitting on top of that garbage pile that, was, that would be burning in some sections. But where it wasn't burning, you had these nasty, awful-looking birds of prey just eating the garbage and some of the, the, the flesh of food that was in there. It's a, it is a horrific picture of devastation. How do we respond to this? Well, first, live as if there is a divine judge because there is. This should be both unsettling for those who are not believers and very settling for those who are believers. There is a divine judge. You don't have to execute justice right now. Yes, you should be people who love justice and when it's in your power to do righteousness. But Jesus says, don't avenge yourselves. God will do that. Live as if there is a divine judge. Jesus as judge. Here's the beautiful picture. Here's, here is the gospel. So this rider on the white horse, this one who is absolutely uncontested in his power, he offers to be your savior. So we would, put, we would say it this way. Jesus Christ will either be your savior on this side of eternity or your judge on the other side. And yet he says, come to me. You who labor and are weary, and I will give you rest. When John the Baptist saw Jesus, what did he say? He uses the term that's so familiar in Revelation and the Gospel of John. He says, behold, the Lamb of God, the sacrificial Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. He offers this judge, this, this Lord of lords, and this King of kings is also the gentle and meek Savior who offers to forgive your sin by His sacrifice. But he is a judge. Listen to what John says in John chapter 5. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him, the Son, authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. This is the Gospel of John. 
Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. And yet, what does Philippians 2 say? Even the ones that are marched off to judgment will bow the knee and confess Him as Lord. Acts 17.31 Because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. What man? What man gets to be the judge? And of this He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. There is one man who rose from the dead never to die again, and it's Jesus Christ. Matthew 25, 31. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. And then listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, which we, which we and should associate with the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. But Paul says, For as in Adam all die... So also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. I mean, this is a profound but yet common teaching throughout the entire New Testament. Live as if there is a divine judge because there is, but He also offers to be your Savior. Secondly, be comforted that He who has begun a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Philippians 1 verse 6. How is that a comfort? He who has begun a good work in you is continuing to work, but when will it be completed? When, when will it be realized? When will the promise be realized? What does it say? What does God's Word say? At the day of Jesus Christ, that is a reference to His return. So that will explain why some of you are so weary and sin-sick today, even though you are God's child that work is continuing and the principle of sin still exists inside of you. That has to be redeemed. And that is why the, the beauty of Jesus Christ as the first fruits of the resurrection that we will be like Him when we see Him at the day of Christ. Even John says this in 1 John. This explains why some of us are discouraged because we still live in this world empire, this Babylon that is assaulting our soul. But be comforted because He who has begun a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Yes, fight sin. Yes, resist sin. Yes, walk by faith. But at the end of the day, you're going to be discouraged at times and disillusioned at times and hurt at times and even hurt by other Christians at times. But take comfort that He who has begun a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. To me, this is, this is the point that resounds. I mean, if there were a praise chorus at the end of what we just saw at the end of the, uh, the banquet of the birds, to me it's this, rejoice for God will set everything that is wrong right again. Now, aren't you ready for that? Aren't you, aren't you ready for that? I mean, from the smallest things like Foolish drivers, you know, 
to human traffickers. Everything right again, because he will rule for the rod of iron, and it is called heaven for a reason. Rejoice, for God will set everything that is wrong right again. That is an appropriate response to the book of Revelation. He is a king on a horse, uncontested. And I just thought, if you could just resound that, king of kings, lord of lords, there's no one who can stand up to him. And by the way, you're his child, and he's promised you an inheritance. And I think the way we will respond also this morning is we will share a meal together. This doesn't look like a dinner table, but it is on purpose presented as a meal. A meal showing forth communion in Jesus Christ. The table was set before you got here. There is food and there is drink, albeit in very tiny portions because we're a large group. But when Jesus instituted this ordinance, it was around a regular meal of fellowship. Matter of fact, they were, they were enjoying the Passover meal and eating like they normally would at a feast. And that's when Jesus took the bread and he took the cup and he said, this, this is going to be something different, this meal. And this bread is my body broken for you. And this And this wine is my blood shed for you. And it shows forth a new covenant. A new promise. One of grace and one of life. One that you cannot purchase. And all are welcome. And at the end of Revelation, you have that beautiful, beautiful invitation. Are you thirsty? Like, I'm not even talking just physically thirsty or physically hungry. When you just get so weighed down, even from your own sin, not other people's sin, are you hungry? Come. That's what Jesus says. I'll give the water of life freely without, without price. Folks, are you thirsty this morning? Then turn from your sin and remember that Jesus Christ died for all of your sins and washed you white as snow. You feel dirty this morning when Jesus looks down upon you right now. You have His righteousness. That's what 2 Corinthians 5.21 says. For our sake, He made Him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. So it's, it's, it's not just the forgiveness of sin, which is already a glorious gift. It's that you have the very righteousness of Jesus Christ. And if you are in Jesus Christ, Romans 5 says, there is no condemnation. So you have no idea how much I messed up this week. Okay, turn. Live a lifestyle of repentance and faith. Turn back to your Savior. But when God looks on you positionally, He sees the very righteousness of Jesus Christ. Now, live in line with your identity. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six says this, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. And when he comes, he is not the meek and lowly one riding on the colt of a donkey. When he comes, he is king of kings and lord of lords on a war horse with an army following him. And what a joy we have to gather in his name this morning and rejoice in his great grace and his forgiveness.